Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, I've had friends that have experienced horrific evil personally. One friend, his son committed suicide. Uh, another friend of mine committed suicide and their, his family, of course, was distraught. And people always ask questions at this time. Why would God allow such evil to occur? Now our nation has experienced two mass shootings in a very short period of time. Let me say something at the risk of being tone deaf. And that is, there is nothing that I'm going to say on this program or nothing my guest is going to say on this program that is going to solve any problem in the short term. Uh, when you go through unspeakable tragedy, no answer is going to solve the problem. When you're going through unspeakable tragedy, you don't need a philosopher, you need a pastor. You need somebody to come alongside you and grieve with you. My friend who lost his son to suicide said people would come to him and just say something to say anything. And most of the time it was awkward. Most of the time it was tone deaf. Most of the time it was almost offensive. And he said, I don't need your answers. I need your presence. That's it. However, this is a radio program, this is a podcast, and we don't mean to be tone deaf on this, but we are going to address this from a philosophical perspective. And some of these answers we give, as I say, may not seem right answers right now, but when you're going through a lot of emotion, no answer seems right. So I just want to say that off the top of the program as we get into this. Um, it's been said before that the best time to get a friend is before you need one. The best time to get answers to the problem of evil is before you go through evil. So we're going to try and go through some questions and some hopefully give some some helpful answers even though they might not be they might not not appear to be helpful when you're in the middle of this tragedy. But we're going to try and do so. My guest has been on this program many times before. Dr. Stephen C. Meyer from the Discovery Institute. Uh, Steve has written several seminal books. The most recent book is The Return of the God Hypothesis, which, by the way, has an implication on what we're talking about here. It has a direct application. So uh, I'd like to invite Steve on. Steve's coming all the way from Washington State right now. Steve, tough situation to have you on the program uh, for, but I, I know you have some insight, and I just want to ask uh, some of your insights uh, that can address this topic. So how are you today, Steve? Yeah, well, um, struck with the same feeling of gravity that many people are in the country. It's This is, as a number of people said, enough. You know, it's getting out of hand. Mm -hmm. But um, 
It was a beautiful opener, Frank. I've also have a very dear friend who lost a son to suicide, and also a, a young person, obviously. And um, you know, something's going on with our young people that's mm-hmm. that's deeply troubling. You know, we have near epidemic levels of of teen suicide. We have these, we've had these shootings. Uh, we have a, a general sense of of uh, malaise and despair and um, aimlessness too, a sense of a lack of purpose in, in, in the lives of young people, many of whom are quite affluent and have on the surface everything uh, that you would want or everything to live for. So there's, there's, something, there's something going on. And it's very interesting that, in the, that we've had the usual left-right political mm-hmm. jabs back and forth about, you know, uh, the different uh, diagnoses of the problem and who's responsible and, and, and so forth. But there have been some voices emerging in the culture saying that there's something deeper than politics that's driving this. And if we're really mm-hmm. to get to, the, to the, the fundamental or to the root issue here, we might have to look deeper than politics, look to matters of the heart, matters of the soul, matters of the spirit, uh, one person has even used the word. There's there's a there's a, there's a spiritual distress and a moral rot that's that's evident. And if we're going to address the real root problem, we're we're going to have to talk about that as hard as that is. Well, let's talk about it, Steve, because you and I were talking off the air. In fact, uh, you just called me out of the blue today on another issue, and we got talking about this. And I said, Steve, this would be a good thing to talk about on our radio program and on our podcast. And if you're just tuning in, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, my guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Uh, The podcast is called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, but the radio program is on the American Family Radio Network. And before we got on, Steve, we were talking about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Can you relate that story uh, to our audience? Well, Solzhenitsyn is obviously one of the great figures of the 20th century, the courageous dissident who uh, stood up to the Soviet Union and wrote uh, many books, spent time himself in the, in the gulag. Um, I have a dear friend in Britain who has, uh, who reached out to many of these Soviet dissidents during the seventies and eighties and provided indirect help and support to them. And Solzhenitsyn has told a story about, uh, told a story, Solzhenitsyn himself has now passed away. His, uh, but he told a story about, uh, a peasant woman in the Ukraine in 1917 as the, as the, 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 the news was coming of the, the Bolshevik takeover of the, of the Russian government. And she was weeping in the fields in, this, in the telling of Solzhenitsyn's story. And uh, she said, these things have happened because men have forgotten God. Mm. And I have thought of that story many times as we see so many indications in our own culture of, of effectively the wheels coming off, things not working well. Yeah, especially this, this, these crises with, with, with young people. Um, and we've had, you know, going back to the Columbine shooting and, and many others, uh, you, you have very distressed young people who end up writing these manifestos, and it turns out that they have a very nihilistic worldview. And you uh, wonder, now, where is that coming from? Certainly, a nihilistic worldview is evidence of either never having been taught about God or having forgotten him, and maybe the never having been taught means that the adults in the in the room in the country have forgotten about god and so um, in in the in the closing chapter of my book i i talk about this crisis of of meaning um, 
and the angst that I experienced as a teenager being unable to answer questions about meaning and purpose in life. And um, one of the things I've often said is that nothing can mean anything to, a, uh, to an atom or a molecule or a rock mm. or a quark mm. or uh, um, uh, meaning. Is, things can only meaning, mean things to persons. And if we've lost the sense that there is a personal source of our existence, that there is a personal creator behind everything to whom we mean something, it's very easy for young people to have the same question I had as a young person, which is, what's it going to matter in 100 years? What does anything we do really, uh, why does that have any consequence uh, if there's no possibility of, of, of an ultimate meaning? and therefore a connection to a person who could grant that meaning. And so I think that the, the dominant secularism of our culture is leading young people to ask questions that they can't answer, and that is plunging many of them into a despair. Now, we don't know that that was the, the motivation, if you will, in this particular, uh, this most recent shooting. We do know that the, the, the second to most recent shooting, the one that occurred in New York, was actually perpetrated by someone who was a, a very uh, ardent atheist and who had a kind of social Darwinist view of race. And, mm. uh, and, and going back to the Columbine shooters, that we know mm. that they were, they, were, they were imbibing Nietzsche and Darwin and uh, believed in the survival of the fittest. And that was why they eliminated people they thought weren't fit. So there are these philosophical underpinnings to some of the despair in young people. And I think we need to address them. All right, that's Stephen Meyer, ladies and gentlemen. We're back in just uh, two minutes with more on this somber day. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. My guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer, all the way from Washington State and the Discovery Institute. We're talking about what has happened to our culture. We've had, obviously, these two horrific mass shootings in the past couple of weeks. How did we get to this point? What is going on in our culture with regard to nihilism? In fact, Steve, why don't you define nihilism for us, and where does this come from? Well, nihilism is the worldview that basically denies that there's any meaning or purpose to human existence. And for many uh, scientists and philosophers, nihilism is flowed out of, uh, it's a consequence of another worldview known as materialism, the idea that matter and energy are the things from which everything else comes, and there is no purposeful creator or intelligence behind the universe. Therefore, the uh, therefore, if essentially, when we die, we rot, and that is the end of the human story. So, whatever meaning we can create for ourselves must be created on a very temporary basis during the time we're here on Earth. And uh, the the nihilist effectively acknowledges that that's. Um, uh, very short-lived. There's a uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who was an existentialist, said that you know, that essentially uh, is a close paraphrase of one of his concepts. But without a an infinite reference point, an infinite and personal reference point, nothing finite has any enduring or lasting meaning. And I think a lot of young people sense that. I did as a teenager. I, I had a period of 
of angst and I would now say in retrospect of mental illness as a teenager where I had questions I couldn't answer uh, about, uh, you know, the one that kept recurring to me is what's it going to matter in 100 years? By which I mm. meant, what does anything I do during the day in this repeating routine, uh, what does any of it ultimately matter? You know, if I get good grades and then I get to go into a good college, well, then what? So then I get a good job and then I make money and and then and, and then what after that? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. the, the thing that triggered it for me actually was I had broken my leg as a 14-year-old and I was in the hospital. My dad gave me a book about the, the history of baseball and I was mad crazy about baseball at the time. And I read the stories of the great the greats of baseball of yesteryear and more recently. And as interesting as they were, they all had the same kind of kind of trajectory. The, the young, uh, talented prospect was scouted, came into the major leagues, uh, ended up having a, a good career, logged so many seasons of, uh, of high batting average or so many wins in World Series games or whatever it was. And then at 35 or 36 or 37, the, the player retired, lived out the rest of his days, enjoying the celebrity of having been a professional athlete, and then had those records to show for his life at the end of it. And I thought, well, but what's what's the meaning of that? I mean, yeah, so, so what? End, yeah. why? What, who cares? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, my, my mother, I remember telling me, well, that's just because it's sports and it doesn't really matter. But I thought, well, well what about that? To me, that was the highest thing you could achieve. What what about mm -hmm. what? If, so if you're a doctor, you save a lot of lives, but then those people eventually die. What is the ultimate meaning of human existence? And mm -hmm. I couldn't get away from those questions. And they may seem very abstract and philosophical, but a lot of teenagers have them. And mm -hmm. um, traditionally, they'd been answered much more satisfactorily and were eventually answered for me by realizing that there was something, uh, there was a personal presence behind the universe. There was a purpose to our existence because there was a purposeful creator and that we could come into a meaningful relationship with that creator. And we've lost that. And, mm. and the, the materialist worldview leads logically to the conclusion that if, if everything comes from matter and energy and we're just a temporary uh, combination of atoms that will eventually decompose, then what follows from that perspective is that when you die, you rot. And that mm. anything that we achieve on this planet will only be remembered for a short time and will have no lasting meaning, as Sartre indicated. And so these things that seem very abstract and philosophical well up in the psyches of, of young people when they're at those ages, when they start asking questions like this. And many of them become very disturbed. And we've had a lot of teen suicides have nothing to do with failure to get into a good college or, or, pros or family prospects or poverty or lack of wealth. There's not a material explanation for these things. Mm -hmm. It's a spiritual and emotional and psychological one. What we call mental illness is often a, 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 a metaphysical angst. It was for me. Well, it appears that this continues to be an issue, not only with these mass shootings, but statistically, we've seen a great rise in teenage suicides over the past decade or so. Uh, there, there's, there is an angst out there. And Steve, when we see these horrific acts, everybody, regardless of their worldview, realizes that they are horrific and wrong. But if the nihilistic worldview is true, if materialism is true, 
How can they be considered wrong from an objective viewpoint? Can they? Well, that's a very deep philosophical question. And my view is that they, that it's not, my view is not that atheists don't have a moral code or that they may not live in a very moral way. We know some atheists and agnostics who live better than people who are committed Christians. Mm -hmm. The question is how philosophically can we make sense of morality if there is no, no, no source of the standard above us all to which we appeal when we say something is right or wrong. When we say, uh, you ought not to murder. We're saying something that is not merely a factual statement. If I say murder hurts people, that's a factual statement. But when I say that it's wrong or that it's that is unethical, I am saying something that implies a standard of ethics or morality. But what, where, from whence does that standard issue? Uh, how can I explain what that standard? I, I, is if I'm a materialist. If all that exists is the, is the material world, um, the that indicative tense can describe that. Uh, the 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 water is wet, the grass is green, atoms have such and such properties. But that's not a, none of those are moral statements. Those are statements about matter only. Moral statements are statements about something else, about a standard of behavior, about the way we should treat each other. They are essentially statements of value. Mm-hmm. Behind every moral statement is a presumed value of the thing to be protected. If I say you ought not to kill or murder someone, that's because human life has value. But valuing is something only a person can do. And so if there are only our individual personal opinions about the values of things, then we will necessarily end up with Eight billion different moralities, or a good, or maybe maybe some um, some smaller number, but definitely right. uh, we'll just we'll have a multiplicity of ethical systems because there are a multiplicity of valuers. To say there is a single moral code uh, implies a single value valuer whose opinion counts more than all others. So traditionally, theism has been able to answer what one Harvard law professor, Harold Berman, called the grand says who question. He said behind mm-hmm. every statement of moral uh, of morality lies the grand says who question. Theism can say what that is, that what we want to say are statements of morality reflect the valuation of typically human persons that comes from Almighty God having made people in his image and 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 made people whom he loves and and values. So um, theism gives a very good answer to that. The moral code reflects God's design for human flourishing. Materialism has a very hard time answering what those ought statements refer to. What what to what standard can can those statements possibly re- be referring if all that fundamentally exists is matter in motion? Now, I can hear some atheists at this point saying, Steve, okay, thank you for acknowledging we can be moral. Thank you. You're not saying we don't know morality. You are saying we can't justify morality. But suppose an atheist were to say, well, this is justified just by evolution, Dr. Meyer, that evolution has given us the idea that, say, murdering people is wrong, and that's why we think it's wrong, even though it not might be it might not be objectively wrong because evolution has just given us this. How would you respond to that claim? Well, the problem with evolutionary accounts of morality, well, let me first let's unpack that account. The idea mm-hmm. is that morality 
uh, as we experience it is an instinct that's been programmed into us by the evolutionary process. The problem with that is that we have many different instincts and we have instincts to, uh, to harm other people. We have instincts to express uh, unbridled sexuality. We have instincts to steal. We have some cases instincts to kill. We also have instincts to help other people, an altruistic instinct. If the, all these instincts are the product of the evolutionary process, we have no basis in evolutionary theory for distinguishing the superiority of one instinct over another, other than to say, well, maybe one allows us to survive better than the other. But sometimes uh, stealing money and absconding to an obscure country in South America may help my survivability and allow right. me to propagate my genes more effectively than playing by the rules. So um, the, the, the traditional rules of morality. So the problem with an evolutionary account of morality is it doesn't, it doesn't stand its own exposure. Once I know that all morality is, is an instinct programmed into me to help propagate the human race, if, the, if, if, my, in, if my interests diverge from the instinct that we, we regard as uh, the moral instinct, um, I have no real reason to to yield to that moral instinct because, after all, if if uh, if my interests are are improved by a certain course of action, then my chances of of uh, spreading and propagating my genes are are improved mm -hmm. as well. And again, coming back to the earlier point, evolutionary theory provides no basis for distinguishing which instinct is. Is, is better or worse in a moral sense. It just all instincts have been programmed into us to promote survival. And if our moral instincts come from evolution, then why wouldn't we say all of our thoughts come from evolution, including the thought that we have that our moral thoughts come from evolution? <laughs> you, it you, really you, is you, a... If you want to base morality or epistemology, uh, you know, there are theories of, mm -hmm. of why we can trust the human mind, in the, our evolutionary past, you inevitably run into these, these uh, problems of self-contradiction. Um, and and I, I think this is one of the reasons that materialism or scientific materialism as a philosophy is incoherent. We're going to have a lot more with Dr. Stephen Meyer. We're going to point out that so much of what we've seen in the past couple of weeks, these tragic events, presuppose so much about humanity and God and right and wrong that maybe we can draw some conclusions. And we'll get to it right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network. My guest is Dr. Stephen Meyer of the Discovery Institute. We're back in just a couple of minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, my guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Before I get back to Steve, I want to mention I'm doing a five-part series at Southbrook Church in my hometown of Weddington, North Carolina, every Wednesday night. Well, I'll be this here this Wednesday night uh, coming up. Check our calendar for more on crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. I'm also going to be... Uh, on the weekend of the 4th and 5th of June at Grace Community Church. Then on Wednesday night, we'll be doing a Q&A session on June 8th at Grace Community Church. This is all in Sarasota, Florida, by the way. 
And then the following weekend, I'll be preaching again at Grace Community Church, the Saturday night service and Sunday morning services. Go to our website for more on that. Again, the Southbrook Church, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist event, is 6.30 p.m. June 1st. And then we'll also meet on June 15th, June 22nd, and June 29th. Grace Community Church will be the weekend of the 4th and the weekend of the 11th. Let's, let me go back to my guest today, Dr. Stephen Meyer. We're talking about the tragic events uh, of the past couple of weeks and trying to sort of get a big picture view as to why we've had these events, why so many uh, people feel angst, why suicide rates are up, why we are generally in a state of moral rot and uh, spiritual demise. Why don't we talk a little bit about materialism, Steve? How did materialism as a worldview arise in the United States or let's say in the West? In the West, yeah, it's a very broad phenomenon. Uh, the, the 19th century was a really pivotal century from a standpoint of intellectual history. Uh, the science itself arose in a very uh, theistic, uh, even Christian milieu in the mm -hmm. period called the Scientific Revolution from roughly 1400 to 1700, 1750. Uh, and the great scientists of that period were devoutly religious men. They were mostly men in that, in that time. Um, Kepler, Boyle, Newton, William Harvey, who, in, who discovered the circulation of the blood. Uh, these, these scientists believed they were uh, studying nature in order to give glory to God. In fact, there's a wonderful book at Princeton University Press published by the historian of science, Rodney Stark, with that title, which is about the scientific revolution. But in the 19th century, there was a kind of shift where science uh, scientists began to uh, uh, explain the origin of things, the origin of the solar system, the origin of the geological features on planet Earth, the origin of species with Darwin, the origin of the first life, the origin of human life, by reference to unguided, undirected natural processes. And by the end of the 19th century, you had it was possible to paint this kind of seamless account of where everything had come from that made no reference to what Laplace, one of the great uh, astronomers who was part of this intellectual shift called uh, the God hypothesis. I have no need of that hypothesis, mm -hmm, said mm -hmm. Napoleon about uh, invoking God to explain where, thing came where things came from. And that encouraged people to think of the ulti ultimate reality as a materialistic reality. If we can explain everything by, by undirected material processes, we don't need to think about an ultimate creator or God behind everything. And so that way of thinking spread into other fields. In psychology, you had figures like, like uh, Sigmund Freud, who uh, gave an account of, of what to do about human guilt and the human condition in, in purely materialistic terms. Um, in economics, you had uh, Karl Marx give his, uh, develop his Marxist utopian ideas about the future of the human race, his dialectical materialist view of where things were going. And so you had these great, in a sense, uh, intellectual figures who became kind of prophets of a materialistic worldview. Darwin came, told us where we came from. Marx gave a vision of where we were going. And Freud told us what to do about our guilt and the human condition. And between those three figures and others, the basic worldview questions that have been always answered by a Judeo-Christian religious framework were, re were now answered by a scientific materialist framework. And that was actually the name that scholars have given to this worldview, scientific materialism. And that is the worldview that became dominant in the 20th century, 
It was uh, it had a, a huge influence on the rise of the totalitarian movements, both uh, the National Socialists in Germany and the Marxists in the Soviet Union and beyond. And it's affected our culture as well, this materialist thinking. And it has, I think, many consequences, only one of which is despair in young people. But I think that is a, a consequence. We've seen that, for example, if you go back to the Columbine killing, the Columbine mm -hmm. um, uh, shootings, the, the two young men that were involved in that um, had issued their own manifestos. And when you read them, you realize they were, they were um, uh, trafficking, if you will, in uh, Darwinian and, uh, and, and Nietzschean thought. They were One, one colleague of mine, uh, Professor Philip Johnson, said that that uh, Nietzsche declared in the 19th century that God was dead, and Darwinism as a, as a system of thought provided the murder weapon. As Richard Dawkins has said, Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. So when you mm -hmm. get that purely materialistic account of where we came from, and then that led thinkers to say, well, we don't really need to invoke God as an explanation for anything, that leads to this materialistic philosophy. And that in turn leaves us unable to answer questions about the source of objective morality or the meaning of uh, the possibility of a lasting meaning to human life or human existence. And I think young people are particularly sensitive to those questions and oftentimes encounter professors who are um, proselytizing them in mm -hmm. service of a materialistic worldview, often on the basis, allegedly on the basis of science. Yeah, quite often the motivation, and motivation doesn't necessarily obviously uh, tell you whether something's true or false, but sometimes the motivation for people claiming that God doesn't exist is this kind of moral freedom they think they have. That's why I always ask people, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And quite frequently they'll say no. They don't want there to be a God because they want to be God of their own lives. The problem is when you deny God exists, then you really have to deny that anything is ultimately right or wrong. And yet when we see these horrific shootings, as we've already pointed out, Steve, every one of us in our gut knows that what these shootings or these shooters did was morally wrong. But it can, they can only be morally wrong if there's a standard beyond ourselves if there's a purpose to life, if human beings are valuable. Have intrinsic dignity and, and worth. Yes, yeah. yes. And these things are hard to just, the, the, those propositions are hard to justify philosophically uh, within the framework of scientific naturalism or materialism. Actually, most, not just- Most scientific naturalists or materialists just become relativists morally. Yeah. But then a then you, you, consistent relativist has nothing to say in the face of these kinds of horrific acts. Right. Well, philosophy itself is dead in the face of materialism, because if we can't account for why we can think about anything, if we're just molecules in motion, if we're just moist robots, then how can we even philosophize about anything? How can we even reason about anything? There was a, a, a famous uh, British scientist, uh, J.B.S. Haldane, who said, if if um, if all the thoughts in my brain are just uh, were just programmed by the motions of atoms. Mm -hmm. I have no reason to believe the thoughts in my brain, or no reason to believe that there are atoms. Um, That's right. <laughs> because I can no longer trust the, the fundamental question of epistemology, which is the subject of how we know what we know and the mm -hmm. justification of human knowledge. The fundamental question at the at the at the uh, foundation of that discipline in philosophy is uh, is the question of the reliability of the human mind. And Darwin mm. himself worried that his evolutionary, materialistic evolutionary account of the origin of the human mind would undermine 
the the our ability to trust the reliability of the mind. I, I address that in in this this final chapter of my book, Return of the God Hypothesis, in which I discuss my own angst as a teenager. I, I discuss this problem of knowledge as well. It's also something that I think it, it bothered me. It bothers a lot of young people. How can I know that that the way I'm perceiving the world conforms to the way the world is and the way everyone else is perceiving the world. And absent a confidence in that, that can result in a kind of cosmic loneliness where you, there's the old Jackson Brown lyric, uh, I just, I'm just another prisoner of time alone within the boundaries of my mind. I think a lot of the very disturbed young people that end up uh, emerging in these, um, in these you know, events in our culture that are so, so troubling, have a sense of, of of a kind of a deep isolation and and that they're cut off from other people at a profound even at an epistemological level how to mm. uh, does anyone else have any idea what i know or experience or am feeling uh, they may not articulate it as professional philosophers but this is where ideas do have consequences they percolate into our consciousness in ways that that um, raise for many of us questions that can't be answered within the framework of our secular of our secular society. Now, Steve, the book uh, Return of the God Hypothesis, we've just been touching on it here. We, we did a whole program on it about a year ago, but it does seem to have sort of a, a dual application to its title. In one sense, you're saying, okay, there's a return of the God hypothesis, hypothesis to big scientific questions like the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin and and the uh, propagation of subsequent life forms. But isn't there another angle on this, Steve, that we need to return to God morally in order to make sense of our lives and to give people meaning so they can move forward? Well, I think the materialism of the 19th century was largely predicated on the incomplete scientific uh, understanding of the late 19th century. As we have learned more about the origin of the universe and about the exquisite design of, of living organisms with the, the digital code that is stored within them and the, the nanotechnology, and as you mentioned, the fine-tuning of the laws and constants of physics, there are, very, there are wonderful and very powerful reasons to believe in the reality of an intelligent and powerful being, as Sir Isaac Newton put it long ago, that the evidence for for God, for a creator, for an intelligent designer is extremely strong. And that allows, at least in principle, us to begin to think about those questions of meaning again in a new light, because meaning requires, as I mentioned before, a personal source. Nothing can mean anything to a rock or an atom or a quark, mm -hmm. but things can mean things to persons. In fact, all, things are only meaningful in relation to persons. Uh, things mean things to me because I am a person and I care about things. And if our lives matter to, to a, an ultimate person, then the, the questions that are bothering young people, I think, can be put in a different context. And I think we can begin to, um, I think we can find hope uh, again. And there, interestingly, in this particular tragedy, people on the left and on the right, not all, but some, have eschewed the, the typical um, political um, recommendations that they offer, you know, mm. whether it's gun control or more security at schools or, you know, there's, there, and there are plenty of debates to be had about all that. And I'm not right. taking a position on any of that. But some people have said, hey, what this really shows is this is a spiritual vacuum in our culture. Mm -hmm. There's a moral problem. And we need to come back. We need to come back to God. 
And we're going to talk about how we can do that and, and give a, hopefully a couple of suggestions on how we can do that in the final segment with my guest, Stephen Meyer. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek. My guest, Dr. Stephen Meyer, the Discovery Institute, back in two minutes. Don't worry about it. Ladies and gentlemen, we just have about a dozen spots left for the Cross-Examine Instructor Academy. Those of you that don't know what that is, it's CIA. It happens every year, three days, where we train you on how not only to present the evidence for Christianity, but how to answer tough questions under fire. It's this, this year, it's in Cincinnati, Ohio. I think it begins on July 28th. Go to our website, crossexamine.org, and apply because once we're full, we only take 60 students, we can take no more. So check that out, get there right away. We're talking to my friend, Dr. Stephen Meyer. We're talking about some of the most difficult uh, issues we can talk about, and that is the school shootings and the evil that seems to have come down in our culture over the past, say, decade or so. Um, and Steve, let's let's deal with the question, you know, why would God allow this to happen a little bit? I'll give my two cents and then hopefully you can jump in as well. Uh, we don't have all the answers here, but one thing we do know is that uh, evil does not disprove God because uh, you need a standard of good for evil even to exist. So if, if there's something evil out there, it means God exists, not because God is doing evil, but because he is the standard of good by which we'd even know what evil was. So evil doesn't disprove God. It actually may prove there's a devil out there, uh, but it can't disprove God. We can ask the question, why would God allow evil to continue? And of course, one reason God allows evil is because he has to allow free will so we can love. The problem is, is when he allows free will, he also allows us to do evil. And if God were to stop evil every time, or if he were to stop us every time we made an evil choice, this would not be a moral world. Um, so we don't have all the not, answers. It would also to frankly not be a God. meaningful world because that's right. I think my my short answer to the question that you just asked is that God takes agency very mm -hmm. seriously. He mm -hmm. created us with the ability to choose. And that is the essential attribute that we hold in common with him and is one of the things that I think scripture means when it says that we're created in his image. Mm. And so in making us with this special attribute of the ability to choose, to create, to formulate ideas and to initiate new lines of, of, um, of activity and, and creativity, um, God has created in human beings something very, very special that he is loath to, to uh, simply uh, obviate or eliminate by, by his own, his own uh, command. But it, that does come with the risk that we will use that capacity in ways that are harmful to ourselves and to each other. And this is, I think, the, the essential meaning of redemption within the Christian framework is that mm -hmm. God figured out a way through the cross to uh, to uh, bear the consequences of our ill choices without eliminating our capacity to choose. So I speak now as a Christian rather than a, mm -hmm. as a proponent of intelligent design or as the director right. of a center that as scientists and, and, uh, and philosophers of many different faith persuasions, but I think this is the unique, uh, the unique 
idea in Christianity. It's I think it's the idea of God in in the notion of the atonement, the sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ is that he that God found a way to preserve and protect human agency, and yet still find a way to uh, make human choices consequential, where he himself ended up bearing the ultimate consequence of ill choices or evil choices. Yes, and even in eternity, friends, God does not take our free choice away from us. He respects free choice even in hell. What he does is he quarantines evil. He puts it in a place where it can't interfere with others. And that's the ultimate destination of evil. It's going to be quarantined. But until the full number of the Gentiles come in, as Paul talks about in Romans 11, God allows this universe to continue where we can make choices, good or bad, uh, God can ultimately redeem them. And look, friends, if there is no afterlife, if there is no, no God who can right every wrong, then there will be no justice. But if there is no God, you can't say what, what it's been done in these shootings is unjust. Because as we pointed out earlier, there's no objective standard if God doesn't exist. So, look, atheism doesn't solve the problem. Atheism, uh, atheism just takes away the hope that there is a solution. And there really is well, a solution. And, and also, as we were saying, I think that this, the materialistic philosophy, which mm-hmm. uh, a- atheism is one manifestation of materialism, mm-hmm. it, it denies the existence of a transcendent person who can give meaning to all of human existence. Mm-hmm. And for good or for ill, like it or not, I think young people in particular are sensitive to that. And I think it's, it is a driver in, in the, uh, the angst that many young people feel. Um, I think the exciting thing for me is that, in, insofar as it was, it was the scientific, it was scientists and intellectuals in the 19th century who gave us this worldview. I think now the the discoveries that scientists have made in the 20th and 21st century uh, uh, about the origin of the universe and the complexity of life are providing the intellectual basis for a return of the theistic philosophy that first gave us science and which mm. has enabled uh, people, ordinary people throughout Western civilization to answer those deep questions of human existence and meaning. And so I, and the title of my book is Return of the God Hypothesis. We have people now calling for a return to God in our culture. We need to come back to him uh, if our culture is to survive. And I, 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 the good news that I have to offer is that there's every reason, there is every evidence now, there, there's good evidential reasons to, to reaffirm God. It was, it was an intellectual turn in the 19th century that caused what Nietzsche called the death of God, the death of belief in God. Uh, but there are intellectual reasons, scientific reasons to reaffirm him, his, his reality. And it's my hope that that, that will enable many people in our culture to to get deep answers to those questions and find a more satisfactory sense of existence and, and, and the promotion of human flourishing. That is something that I think, I hope everyone can agree on, is that we've got to get away from nihilism. We've got to get back to an idea that there is real right and wrong out there. And again, if and, there and is real right and wrong. An intrinsic dignity and value to mm-hmm. human existence. Um, this That's was right. part of our, our constitutional framing. We hold these truths mm-hmm. to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, 
where rights in Western political philosophy were understood to be derivative of an intrinsic dignity that was not granted by the state and could not be taken away by the state, but was given by God himself. And that was also the basis of the common law. The reason that we can't take another person's life is that life is valuable to our creator, whose mm. opinion about what matters matters more than any other opinion. Mm. Steve, because he's he got a author of life and has right. the right, is the has the right the right to define what matters. Yes, he does. He is the standard of goodness, and any deviation from him is what we would call evil. So when you look at these evil acts that we all, regardless of our worldview, recognize as evil, uh, that should let us know there's a standard of good, and that is God's very nature and. Look, we all ask questions. Why does God allow X? Why does God allow Y? Why does God allow Z? Sometimes we need to take a step back, though, and ask ourselves when we say, why doesn't God stop evil here? Or why doesn't God stop evil there? Sometimes we need to stop and ask ourselves, why doesn't God stop me? Because I do evil every day. Ladies and gentlemen, if God were to stop evil at midnight tonight, would you still be alive at 1201? I know I wouldn't be. Uh, yet we always we always complain, often rightfully so, about evil outside of us, but we never seem to apply that same question to ourselves. Maybe we ought to start doing that. Maybe we ought to say, what can I do now to follow your, your Christ better? Frank reminds me of uh, two, th two of my fa favorite English authors. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote into the London Times after uh, the Times queried its readers, about what's wrong with the world today. And Chesterton wrote back with two words, I am. That's right. G.K. Chesterton. And uh, then uh, someone who was deeply influenced by Chesterton was C.S. Lewis, mm -hmm. who um, said very poignantly, I think, that God um, whispers to us in our pleasures, but screams to us in our pain. And I, th I think in this very tragic series of events we've had in our country, which are not in, which are not in at all isolated anomalies. Alas, right. I think God is 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 speaking to us and saying, um, "Hey guys, I'm still here. Uh, the wheels are coming off as you're doing things without me. Maybe it's time that mm -hmm. the, the country returned to God." Um, I've been arguing the intellectuals, the scientists have every reason to turn return to God, return to belief in God, but maybe we all need to take that belief very mm -hmm. seriously and. And, and have a have a rethink about about where we stand in the culture, and realize that it hasn't always been this way. And uh, if America is to get back on track, if our young people are to to find meaning and purpose in life, we've we've got to teach them about God because mm. He is a reality, and there's every evidence of that. Yeah, it reminds me of Billy Graham. I think it was Billy Graham years ago when there was one of these tragedies. You know, where is where was God in this? And he said something like, "Well, we kicked God out years ago." Right. <laughs> you can't kick him out and say, well, where was he then? You didn't want him. And you then have these awful consequences. And ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening now, I know that religious people have done evil things, too. But let me ask you a question. When someone plays Beethoven poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Beethoven. When somebody plays Christ poorly, you don't blame Christ. Newsflash, Christianity is not Christians. Christianity is Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. We're all fallen. We all do evil. That's why we all need a Savior. And let's pray that 
Uh, people come around, those that have lost young people in these tragedies and even older people in the Buffalo shootings. Let's pray that uh, God's comfort can come through his Holy Spirit and also through the people around them. Steve, thank you for adding so much great insights to this program today. Thank you, Frank, for a very, very important conversation. Yeah. That's Steve Meyer, ladies and gentlemen. I want you to check out Steve at discovery.org. I also want you to go to the Daily Wire and check out a recent article he wrote on the multiverse, which is very interesting, ladies and gentlemen. It's big in pop culture now. It's in the new Doctor Strange movie. Check that out. We'll have Steve on again at some point to talk more about that, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Pray for the victims of these great tragedies. And I hope to see you here next week. Yes, the families as well. God bless. Thank you, Frank. Thank you.